This is Tiffany Bova. Welcome to the What's Next podcast, where I have the absolute pleasure of welcoming Cindy Gallup today. Her background is impressive with over 30 years in brand building, marketing, and advertising. Cindy took a risk when she entered advertising and hasn't stopped taking them since. In 1998, she moved to New York from the UK and began building one of the fastest growing agencies in Europe, its US branch. Four years after that, BBH US was named Adweek's Eastern Agency of the Year, and in 2003, Cindy was named Advertising Woman of the Year. After all her success in the agency world, she resigned as chairman of BBH in 2005 to do something different. Today, she continues to work in branding and advertising, but is also tending to some fascinating projects of her own. She launched Make Love Not Porn at 10 2009. She's the founder and CEO of If We Ran the World, a co-action software which enables brands to implement the business model of the future, shared values, shared action equals shared profit. There is so much more, but I'll stop there and just welcome Cindy to the podcast. Thrilled to be here, Tiffany. Thank you very much. I could have kept going because I just love <laughs> the story and the journey, but I know we'll get into it. Um, but as always, my, my listeners, uh, have gotten used to something I do called bullish and bearish at the beginning of the podcast. And it's just a way for us to get the juices flowing and have a little bit of fun. So bullish is you are for it. Bearish is you are against it. And, uh, you know, if there's anything you want to double click on, we'll, we'll do it after that. So are you ready? I am indeed. All right. The first one. Artificial intelligence, writing, advertising copy. Oh, bearish. <laughs> Very much so. Oh, wow. I actually didn't think you would say that, but, you know, uh, uh, I want to dig into that. So let's hold mm. that one. All mm. right. The next one. Robot and human marriage. Oh, bearish. <laughs> Again, bearish. Yep. Well, you know. I, I, I'm two for two. Yep. Sometimes I go all bullish. Sometimes I go, you know, all bearish. All right. The third one is uh, delivery drones for brands. Oh, bearish on that too. Oh, three bearish. Mm. All right. Well, you know, let, let's start with the first one because, you know, you uh, are just a powerhouse in advertising and have been for so long, you know, being, you know, named advertising women of the year and, you know, Business Insider is, you know, named you one of the most important marketing strategy thinkers. So I'd love to just have you take us through a little snapshot of sort of where you've seen advertising sort of come from and where it is now and, and what your thoughts are. Sure. Well, well, actually, that particular bullish versus bearish um, question was extremely timely, Tiffany, because um, just um, yesterday, um, I was reading um, an email newsletter from um, Dean Carroll, who is the editor of Mumbrella Asia, which is um, the um, marketing uh, media publication for our industry um, over in Asia. And um, he was um, talking about um, a number of things that he'd been hearing about at Adweek Asia, which has just taken place in Tokyo. And um, he goes through, um, you know, to, um, a, a whole number of perspectives that different speakers gave and, um, and you know, references, obviously, um, the fact that the industry is not in a good place and then um, looks at, at various trends. And 
Um, he he had a chat at Adweek with um, Media Monk's chief operating officer and S4 Capital's executive director Wesley Terhar. Um, Media Monk's is the company that Martin Sorrell's um, uh, new holding company S4 Capital uh, just bought. And so um, in this email newsletter, Dean says um, Wesley told me he thought virtual personal assistants would be buying all consumer goods on behalf of humans within ten years. He predicted a real-time online bidding system where the machines will negotiate with each other based on the brief given to VPAs by their human overlords, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I looked at that, and um, that to me reflected, um, Tiffany, what is precisely the issue with AI at the moment, which is that um, in a male-dominated tech industry, a white male-dominated tech industry, um, we know that um, the lack of diversity um, within the, the people, the humans, um, building um, new AI systems um, absolutely, um, unfortunately, feeds into some very, very worrying trends. And I was looking at this um, thinking it's already ridiculous that we have a male-dominated advertising industry when the primary purchaser of everything is us women and and the, the tendency to go down um, paths for both the future of technology and the future of our industry through the white male lens moves us further and further away from being genuinely innovative and disruptive and effective um, in actually looking at all of this through the female lens. And so that's why um, I responded in the first instance, um, bearish. And then secondly, um, and and again, this is also true um, from a gender inequality perspective, but you know what um, what technology does not take sufficient um, account of currently is that the lifeblood of our industry is creativity. And and for creativity to flourish, you need to create um, circumstances where you know the unexpected and the delightful can occur. And creativity is not something you can legislate for within within artificial intelligence and within um, technological systems. And so, for both of those reasons, and because again, I want to see creativity through the female lens um, being far more effective in our industry than it's ever been given the opportunity to be. Um, that's why um, that is not the way I see the future going. So what I really liked about that comment is that women are uh, predominant consumers of goods and services. And so thinking back across advertising, if you think from kind of the Mad Men television show to today, you know, when you look at advertising, I'd also say that we've we've gotten better at least, in my opinion, right? I'm not in the trenches like you are, in trying to be more... Uh, inclusive in the conversation advertising is having, where brands are starting to highlight things like purpose over profit and, you know, even beauty brands showing, you know, all women. And, you know, there was the the ad um, recently with a dad showing his son how to shave and you got mixed reviews of backlash between people who were either really for it or really against it. And so I think you've raised a point of advertising trying to at least be a spearhead on the dialogue of diversity and inclusion and, and trying to be more balanced, at least in the way it positions brands. Is that a fair statement? Oh, but, but you see, Tiffany, that is precisely the problem because... You know, as as I um, say regularly and publicly, you know, don't 
talk diversity. Don't create powerful, compelling, emotional campaigns about diversity. Don't do stunts about diversity. Just be diverse. And that is what is not happening. Um, it's, it's extremely ironic because there is, you know, there's a huge focus currently in our industry on what is being depicted in advertising. And so, you know, Unilever launched the unstereotype movement several years ago. Um, you know, um, currently um, they are driving an initiative with Getty Images where um, they are ensuring that there are a ton of images for use in, in Getty's photo library of women depicted, um, you know, across all sorts of body types, all sorts of ethnicity in all sorts of roles. Um, but the point about this is that our industry should not be ensuring that young white male creatives go, oh, we have to be a lot more careful about how we depict women in advertising. All of those stereotyping problems go away when you simply have women creating, approving, producing, and directing the ads. In the same way that, you know, um, Every stereotype goes away. Everything becomes genuinely, authentically diverse and inclusive when you have women, people of color, LGBTQ, disabled people creating, approving, producing and directing the ads. Our industry likes to talk about its glory days, you know, the Madison Avenue of old. Our industry thinks its glory days are over. And I can tell you our glory days have not even begun because we have not begun to see what this industry could be with the talent and creativity and skills of women and people of color. And basically, um, nothing will change fundamentally until women, people of color, everyone considered other are actually in leadership, in power, influencing and creating and innovating and disrupting and driving this industry. And that is most definitely not happening. So, and I don't necessarily disagree with that statement. I do think we've made progress, but let me ask you it this way. If you know someone's listening and they say, look, I'm a I'm a marketing manager, right? I'm part of a team. I'm not a manager or I'm not a leader. And I'm most definitely not sitting in the C-suite or in the boardroom, but I'm an individual contributor. And, you know, I'm listening to Cindy and I'm going, gosh, you know, light bulb moment, or she's validated what I've always known and believed. And so what can I do? You know, I'm saying this as, right, what can I do as an individual contributor to potentially change that if I all of a sudden look around my you know, latest staff meeting or team meeting, and I see that that what you just described is not in fact reality, right? And we are creating, uh, we are developing creative. What would be a recommendation for them uh, to start to make the change at sort of from a bottom up level? Absolutely, Tiffany. Um, I believe that change happens from the bottom up, not the top down. Because every single one of us, every day, taking micro actions, small, simple, easy to do actions that change what we want to see change, cumulatively adds up at scale to enormous impact. So um, in the first instance, um, I would point your listeners to um, the 3% movement, um, the Three Percent Movement was started by an amazing female creative director called Kat Gordon seven years ago, and it's called the Three Percent Movement because when she started it, ninety-seven percent of all advertising agency creative directors were men; only three percent were women. 
which meant that we as, as the primary consumer were being paid back to ourselves in advertising all the time through the male gaze. We still are. But that started um, the 3% movement um, with its anchor event every year, the 3% conference. Um, and she set out to make change and monitor it. And I'm happy to say that um, now um, 11% of all advertising agency credits are women, still far too few, but, but more. Um, and the reason I, I point listeners there is because um, the 3% movement has on its website a list of 100 microactions everybody can take every day. Um, to create change in ensuring equality, diversity, and inclusion. So in the first instance, there are a ton of microactions at the 3% Movement's website, so please go there. But what, what I would say also is um, absolutely, on a daily basis, look around you and just ask yourself, what would I like to see change about this meeting, this project team, this process? And whatever it is, um, bring it up, highlight it, and actively push to make change in that area. And, um, and you, um, as you do that, you inspire other people around you to join you. Um, and as more and more of you are looking to make that change on a daily basis, we will see more and more change happen. Every one of us can absolutely do something every day to change all of this. Yeah, and I had I had a guest on uh, Lisa Bodell uh, many, many months ago. She was one of my very first guests. And she has this uh, idea that that she's been uh, implementing and sharing, you know, with executives and boards that she uh, advises on, and it was sort of a called a plus one. And so, going back to your comment about meetings, that if you're sitting in a meeting, that everybody gets an opportunity to invite a plus one to the meeting, and that plus one could be someone from outside the company, it could be a customer, it could, to your point, it could be someone you know with a diverse uh, sort of background that gives you a different lens. It could be you know a customer who's left you. It could be someone from the call center, right, the front line. Like it's just a plus one open, and that would allow that each meeting there would be some fresh perspective and point of view instead of this kind of group think, right? Which to your point, it was ninety seven percent. You know, now it's, uh, you know, 89%. But so that 89% could be viewed as kind of group think. And so adding that plus one is a great way to, it's non-threatening, right? It's just someone else's point of view inside, outside the company. Another group could be uh, someone of color. The other category could be someone who's trying to use your product that is disabled or whatever it might be. I think that's a great one as well. Um, no, no, it certainly is. Um, although I would, I would just pick up on on your use of the of the of the word non threatening there, Tiffany, because um, uh, you know a couple of years ago, um, Campaign Magazine, which is the um, UK's um, t- um, industry trade publication, um, uh, ran a um, billboard series at the Cannes Lions Advertising Festival, and they asked um, a number of industry leaders to contribute actions that that people could take in the ad industry um, to drive more equality, diversity, and inclusion. And so I gave them um, uh, several um, uh, suggestions myself, um, and, and all of which were micro actions that um, leadership and other people could take. And, and one of them was, um, you know, white men um, at the top of our industry hire into equal power with you a woman you feel threatened by. And so I encourage people to embrace what they feel threatened by, because that's how you grow. Yeah, well said. I mean, I think that that 
stretching your comfort zone uh, is is absolutely critical to any of these things we're talking about, right? The way we've always done things may not be the way we need to do things going forward. And, you know, the people sitting next to us may not be the people sitting next to us going forward. So I think that's a great message. And especially on those sort of micro uh, adjustments um, that we can each do, you know, from the bottom up and, and allowing people uh, the opportunity to do that. And I think that's a you know, great segue into the uncomfortable conversation, <laughs> which uh, I'm jokingly saying that only because uh, I know you're super passionate about it. But one of your, you know, one of your other babies, if if you you know, if not your favorite child, would be uh, make love not porn. And I'd love to have you just sort of share with our listeners kind of the mission behind that and and what got you started on on this journey sure so um my startup is an accident um i date younger men um they tend to men in their 20s and 11 or 12 years ago i began realizing through dating younger men that i was encountering what happens when today's total freedom of access to porn online meets our society's equally total reluctance to talk openly and honestly about sex When those two factors converge, porn becomes sex education by default in not a good way. And so being a naturally action-oriented person, I decided something about this. And 10 years ago, I put up a tiny clunky website on no money at makelovenotporn.com that that very simply posted the myths of porn versus reality. The the construct was um, porn world versus real world. I had the opportunity to launch Make Love Not Porn at the TED conference in 2009. I gave a somewhat notorious TED talk, which um, subsequently went viral. And it drove an extraordinary global response to my tiny website that I had never anticipated. And I realized I'd uncovered a huge global social issue. So I felt responsibility to do something about that, um, to make Make Love Not Porn much more far-reaching, helpful, and effective. And I also saw an opportunity to do what I believe in very strongly, which is that the future of business is doing good and making money simultaneously. Um, So I um, essentially turned Make Love Not Porn into a business um, whose mission is one thing only, which is to help make it easier for every single person in the world to talk openly and honestly about sex. Because the issue isn't porn. The issue is we don't talk about sex in the real world. So today, um, makelovenotporn.tv is the world's first and only user-generated, human-curated social sex video sharing platform. We are what Facebook would be if Facebook allowed you to socially, sexually self-express and self-identify, which it sadly doesn't. We are socializing sex, making it easier for everyone to talk about, in order to promote consent, communication, good sexual values, and good sexual behavior. We call ourselves at Make Love Not Porn the social sex revolution. The revolution part is not the sex, it's the social. It's interesting because, you know, when um, you and I first met, uh, you know, it's this, it's this interesting dynamic of the conversation and how I felt like when I knew I was going to have you on as a guest, that people listening, they're either going to go, oh, this is great. Like, this is going to be a fantastic dialogue and conversation. I'm going to learn something. Or they're going to go, wow, this took a turn <laughs> like into an area <laughs> I, I didn't think we were going to be listening to in the What's Next podcast, right? But I think that this is all part of, um, you know, in my, I'm trying to pull it all together, right? Just this whole movement around wellness and health and 
you know, well-being and having, you know, balanced lives and, and feeling comfortable in who you are and all of those things. It's all sort of part of that. Correct. Absolutely, Tiffany. And in fact, there's even more to it than that. So um, I spoke at Cannes Lions two years ago um, on a panel called Sex, the Final Marketing Frontier. And the point I made to the audience um, then and and, and continue to make to our industry is, um, so first of all, um, people have sex in cars, especially in markets where for sociocultural reasons, Young people live at home with their parents till they get married, which, by the way, given the economy, is now true of the U.S. Um, in markets where you know premarital sex is frowned upon, or markets where, again, for cultural reasons, whole families live together in households, so even husbands and wives don't have privacy to be intimate. So all around the world, a huge number of people are having a huge amount of sex in a huge number of cars. Yet the automotive industry is spectacularly failing to factor this into product design and marketing. Even more fundamentally, people have sex in bed, but the mattress industry focuses all its R&D on sleep. People have sex on kitchen counters, but the kitchen industry is not taking this into account when looking at height, depth, comfort. The point being, there is a far broader business application of human sexuality and human sexual experience than the business world ever thinks about, and it is leaving money on the table. When our industry does not study this universal air of human behavior with the same depth and consumer insights and perspectives and research and data as we study every other area of human attitude and behavior. So I'd have to say, I hadn't thought about that. Like, you know, I talk, yeah, I talk, I often talk and I'm, and I'm sure, you know, I didn't even know what to say at the end of that sentence. I mean, I often talk about how, um, I'm just going to focus on car companies for a second, right? That, that they're really pivoting towards quote unquote, the experience of the driver over the products themselves. So if you listen to, t- you know, commercials today, mm-hmm. let's go back to advertising, right? It isn't drivetrain and miles per gallon. It's, it has four ports, it's Wi-Fi. <laughs> There's a place yeah. to put your iPad. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's talking about sort of the driver, yeah. quote unquote, inside experience. Now, after you've just said that, it will never leave my, you know, once you've heard it, you're never going to unhear yeah. it, right? Now I'm going to think, and so when are they going to figure out that now the experience in the car includes this? I mean, no, no, Tiffany, absolutely. I I guarantee you the first car mark to openly and straightforwardly say, and we have absolutely designed our cars to be, you know, this particular model, whatever, to be enormously comfortable and intimate and perfect for having sex in, I guarantee they would sell a ton of those cars. But, I, you know, it's almost worth an experiment, right? <laughs> no, 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 I'm looking for, for, for the automotive manufacturer who wants to work with me to, to design this car. Absolutely. Well, and, and I think that that leads me to, you know, sort of, uh, you know, one other question I wanted to, to get in today is, is, you know, thinking about um, even just the advertising industry and and this topic of sort of, of, of sex is because if you think about like Tinder as an example, you know, they didn't take out advertising campaigns, right? It was really kind of word of mouth, et cetera. And, and even looking at how technology has changed the way people, you know, date, find somebody or match.com or anything, right? That, that technology has, has now totally changed that as well. 
Yeah, but, I mean, I mean, we, we are doing consumers a huge disservice when we do not normalize and socialize this universal area of human experience. You know, and and you know, what, what, one of the things that you know, make love not porn does is it really reassures people. Um, about um, how how actually in sex there's no such thing as normal. You know, make love not porn is a wonderful window on the real world. We celebrate real world everything, but but the point is that um, you know because we don't talk about sex in the real world, it is an area of rampant insecurity for every single one of us all around the world, no exceptions. And so from a marketing perspective, you know, the more brands. Um, embrace and normalize this area and make consumers feel comfortable and, you know, socialize in their sexuality, um, I promise you, you know, the more they will be drawn to those brands and, um, and the more they will buy into them and, and absolutely um, uh, be loyal to them because we are, and I can say this from 10 years of working on Make Another Porn, we are desperate for reassurance and education and comfort and insight in this area that makes us feel good about being the sexual beings that we all are. Well, I, you know, I love the goal. I love the aspiration. And, and, I, and I find it fascinating, too, that when I was preparing for our time together, um, that when you sort of go, when you know, I went out and I said, okay, let me let me sort of hear what you know, read what, do a little research on what people are talking about saying, sort of in this category. And I was surprised at how light it was, right? So yeah, you know, yeah, just uh, you know, missing from the conversation. Mm, so exactly. You know, not that people uh, that you know, everybody listening on this podcast is going to oh. say, oh, great, you know, when I go into work tomorrow, I'm going to say, hey, what about these products? <laughs> it was kind of not the goal of it, right? The, the thought was for just to sort of raise awareness um, around a, you know, a conversation that we're just not having as a society. Exactly, Tiffany. I mean, um, you know, I mentioned one can speech I gave um, a couple of years before that. I was at Can Lions again. Um, I did a seminar on porn, youth and brands, the biggest social cultural influence in young people today that we don't talk about. And, you know, it was stacked out, unsurprisingly, with, with lots of people from the ad industry. And so, I said to the audience, um, raise your hand if you are a strategic planner. And a whole forest of hands went up. And I said, okay, keep your hand up if you are a strategic planner who, when developing a strategy for the client, writing a brief for the creative department, writes something like this. Our target audience <clears throat> is a an 18, 24-year-old young man. You know, this is where he lives. This is the kind of work he does. This is where he and his friends hang out. This is how many hours of porn he watches a week, and this is how it impacts his relationship with his girlfriend. No hands. And I said to the audience, you know, exactly what, what I've said to you, we are not helping consumers, and we are not doing our duty of fully understanding our audiences when we refuse to acknowledge this area of universal human attitudes and behavior in the same way we do all the others. It's, it's critically important for a fully rounded um, perspective and lens on, on the people we market to. And it's critically important for a fully rounded understanding of all the business we could do um, when we normalize this and market to consumers accordingly. Well, I think anybody who's listening that's in an industry that has any ability to touch on this, uh, it's a it's a challenge. You know, it's sort of a battle cry to say, you know, what are the things that we could we could actually do to improve this conversation? 
you know, bubble it more to a positive light because I think um, many uh, get uncomfortable with the conversation or they they feel like it's the underbelly side of the conversation, not the healthy side of the conversation. So this has been great discussing um, discussing this with Cindy and I and I so appreciate your passion on you know finding something that that uh, you know is controversial but yet uh, really important. I think uh, dialogue for all of us to have. Oh, thank you, Tiffany. And I will just make your audience aware that I will be at Can Lions um, this year um, uh, in a couple of weeks' time, and I will be speaking on this very topic um, on on the Tuesday morning at Can Lions. So um, watch my social media feeds for news of where to come if you're attending Can, because I'd love to see any of your listeners there. Oh, that would be fantastic. Well, you know, as we get to the end of, of our time together today, uh, I'd, I'd love to just, you know, hear what you think is what's next for uh, the advertising industry you think that's going to be coming around the corner in kind of 2020, 2021, because we're so close to that. I remember 10 years ago when we were talking about it, and now we're like, you know, 18 months away. It's crazy. But, uh, you know, what do you think is going to be around the corner for, you know, advertising and marketing? Well, um, here's an interesting thing um, to me, because um, I, I encourage um, everybody who asks that question not to ask it in the passive tense. My favorite quote of all time is Alan Kay, who said, in order to predict the future, you have to invent it. I'm all about inventing the future. Too many people think the future is something that just happens without us and rolls us over in its wake. And I'm all about decide what you want the future to be and make it happen. And so I encourage everybody in advertising and marketing to take a long, hard look around you, see what you think is missing um, that should be there, what you would love to have in our industry that does not exist, what you think you could bring to the table, and then start that business. Because we invent the future advertising when every one of us that has a completely different vision for what this industry could be actually brings that vision to life, makes that business happen. And by the way, you know, I I always say to the people who actually do start up their own radically innovative, disruptive vision of what advertising could be, you know, trust me, at some point in the future, a holding company is going to want to buy it from you for a shit ton of money. So it's totally worth doing. Um, But I would see every one of us um, actively looking at what we think is missing and, and should be there and doing everything we can to bring that to the industry, to give it the glorious future it deserves. Well, I think that is a fantastic piece of advice, Cindy, for everybody, right? Um, it, it is it is the lifeblood of the entrepreneurial spirit. So um, I thank you for that. So I would just love to uh, ask you one last question. Sure. If you could go to dinner with anybody, living or not living, who would that be? Um, just one person or a whole range of people? Well, you can have a whole range, but we don't have a whole lot of time. Yeah, so, yeah. To, to be frank, um, I would just go to dinner with my three sisters and my mother because that's the best dinner with one's family. And I love that answer. So, besides your family, who else would it be? Oh gosh. Um, well, to, well, well. To, um, beyond that, um, so many people. But um, I think, um, I think, right now, um, I would. I would actually love to have dinner with Melinda Gates. And I say that because I've been very interested um, observing how um, she has 
come out of the shadow of um, Bill and is really moving to change many things for women in the world. And I would love to draw her attention to the one area that she is not yet operating in, which is obviously that very important area of human sexuality, and have a whole conversation with her about how she and the Gates Foundation could really make amazing things happen around that. Uh, I think she's just done a fantastic job. I'd say her as well as Jean Case, who is uh, Steve Case's wife, uh, same thing, like just um, two women who are really having these fantastic conversations. Well, Cindy, I thoroughly enjoyed our time together. I knew this would not be a boring conversation and I was not disappointed. I hope everybody listening enjoyed uh, our time together. So I just want to let make sure that uh, people can continue to follow you and, and hear what you're up to. So what's the best way to stay in touch with, with Cindy? Um, sure. So you can follow me on Twitter at Cindy Gallup. You can also follow um, at Make Love Not Porn. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. Do follow me there. Um, and um, I'm on Facebook, um, facebook.com slash cindy.gallup. Well, thank you again, Cindy. And I just appreciate all your support. Thank you for spending time with us on the What's Next podcast. And thank you all for listening in. Total pleasure, Tiffany. Thank you very much. What a fun podcast with Cindy. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Taking the journey through the history of advertising and how we can be much more mindful of diversity and inclusion in thinking about how we promote our own brands and our products, as well as support this inclusive culture when it relates to the planning that goes behind advertising and marketing. I thought that was a fantastic conversation. And I bet today you didn't think you were going to hear about Make Love Not Porn. But it was a fantastic dialogue, I think, to get really uncomfortable and into the nitty gritty about all the opportunities in front of us and the healthy side and the well-being side of what it means to have these conversations about how companies can really start to level up how they present this topic of sex into the marketplace in a way that doesn't make people feel like they want to turn off. So it was fantastic to have Cindy on today. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Please make sure you subscribe to the What's Next podcast, share with your friends, leave a review. I look forward to having you join me again next time. 